Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Lies always sink to the bottom and are always found out for what they truly are. Lies. Today, we come to this passage of deceit as we look at the ongoing story, and I would say saga in some regard, of Abraham. Abraham and Sarah. Over the past few weeks, we've been unpacking their story, their narrative in Genesis, and we've been looking at some of the different things going on in their life. We're looking at how God called Abraham and Sarah out of the land of Ur into a land that he said he would show them. We looked at that in Genesis chapter 12. We looked at God promising Abraham and Sarah that they would have many descendants, generations and generations of descendants who would outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the earth. We looked at how Abraham and Sarah got a little antsy, and Sarah said, why don't you take my servant Hagar, and maybe she can bear you a son through whom descendants will come. And then when that went really bad, it put a strain on the relationship. We see Abraham and Sarah laughing when God comes again to them and says, by this time next year, you'll bear a child. And at this point, Sarah is beyond childbearing years, and Abraham is near 100 years old. And they both laugh at the idea that God can fulfill that promise through them at their time. We see God's patience with Abraham as Abraham persists in pressing into God about saving Sodom and Gomorrah if only there were so many people still left that were faithful to God. We see him doing that six times. God, if you'll just allow me one more time to press in, what if there are 10 faithful Today we move on to Genesis chapter 20, and we move on to a narrative in Abraham and Sarah's life where God had already proven himself faithful to Abraham and Sarah, hadn't he? God had already come through for them time and time and time again, and yet we see a slipping of the character of Abraham in telling what might be considered a white lie, but I digress. Let's look. Genesis chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Abraham moved south to the Negev and lived for a while between Kadesh and Shur, and then he moved to, on to Gerar. So that probably means nothing to you if you're not familiar with the geography of the land. So where modern-day Israel is today, this would have been where the Philistines lived, Okay? On the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the southern part of what would be considered modern-day Israel, southern coast on the left there of the Mediterranean Sea. So this is where he is. And while living there as a foreigner, Abraham introduced 
his wife Sarah by saying, she's my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar sent for Sarah and had her brought to him at his palace. But that night, God came to Abimelech in a dream and told him, you are a dead man. For that woman that you've taken is already married. But Abimelech had not slept with her yet. And so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Didn't Abraham tell me she's my sister? And she herself said, yeah, he's my brother. I acted in complete innocence. My hands are clean. Now let's stop there for a second. Does the story seem a bit askew? Does it seem strange to you? It does. But I want you to consider the cultural context here. Certain kings of certain pagan lands had harems. They had a vast group of women, wives and concubines. It was not unheard of in the Middle Eastern culture and those surrounding territories to have multiple women at your disposal if you were a powerful king-like man. And Abraham knew this. Now, Abraham is a nomad. What is a nomad? Somebody who travels, sets up tents, and then up, uproots and goes to a different location, right? That's what a nomad is. They're wandering people. And so Abraham is wandering to this land as he often does throughout that whole region. And he settles for a while in this land of Gerar where there was a king over this little tribal nation by the name of Abimelech. Abimelech has multiple wives and concubines. And so when Abraham comes into the territory, he pulls up this scheme that he's already used one time before in Genesis chapter 12 with Pharaoh in Egypt, which I'll get to in a minute, to say, Sarah, let them know you're my sister because if they know you're my wife and they see your beauty, now he doesn't say that in this one, he said it in the previous one, which we'll talk about, but he said when they see you, they'll want to kill me and take you for themselves. Oftentimes, these kind of marriages and things were meant to bring nations together. Even all the way up through the 16th, 17th, 1800s, you'll see like kings of France and kings of England marrying off their children as a peace treaty between nations, okay? Does this make sense? Are you with me? Okay. So there's a part of this that though weird to us in modern America where this kind of thing does not happen, it was relatively normal in those days. But Abraham is fearful that Abimelech, if he knows that Sarah is his wife, will kill him. So let's read on. It says Abimelech had not slept with her yet. We don't get that in Genesis 12 with Pharaoh. This was a weird thing to come up with this week when I was studying, trust me. Verse 6, in the dream with Abimelech, God responded, yes, I know that you're innocent. That's why I've kept you from sinning against me and why I did not let you touch her. Now return the woman to her husband and he will pray for you for he's a prophet. Then you will live. But if you don't return her to him, you can be sure excuse me, that you and all your people will die. This is the first time, by the way, that the word prophet is used in the, New or in the Old Testament. And it's used for Abraham. He is a prophet. He'll pray for you. Then you will live. But if you don't return her to him, you can be sure that you and your people will die. We've heard that in Genesis 
uh, before, haven't we, earlier on? If you eat of this fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Abimelech, if you take of the fruit of this woman who is married to another man, you will die and your descendants. Abimelech got up early the next morning and quickly called his servants together. And when he told them what had happened, his men were terrified. Okay, these were God-fearing men. When I say God, I mean little g, God. But Yahweh came to Abimelech in a dream, the one true God of all gods, right? And warns him. And so now Yahweh, having warned Abimelech, and Abimelech now telling his, his, his leaders, they all become terrified. And then Abimelech called for Abraham. What have you done to us, he demanded. If, if somebody lied to you about something like this, would you be kind of ticked off? I, I would hope you would, because it's not right. What have you done to us, he demanded. What crime have I committed that deserves treatment like this, making me and my kingdom guilty of this great sin? No one should ever do what you have done. Do you catch the weird dichotomy here? The godly man is acting like a sinner, and the sinful man is acting like a godly man. What you have done to us, you should have never done. Abraham knew that, but he wasn't acting that way. Whatever possessed you to do such a thing. And so now Abraham has an opportunity to speak. What does he say? Well, listen. Well, I thought this was a godless place. They will want my wife and kill me to get her. And she really is my sister, for we both have the same father from different mothers. <gasps> no way! Are you serious? So it wasn't completely a lie, then that makes it okay. Right? I joke about Sarah Lee being my sister, which she's really my wife, but we don't have true biological bonds that way, okay? It is merely a joke. But it, thank goodness who said that. <laughs> but in Abraham's situation, he could say both. She's my wife and she's my sister. Which gives us something that we hadn't really thought of before. Terah, T-E-R-A-H, was Abraham's father. We don't often hear the lineage of the women from men in the Bible. Usually when you see genealogies, with rare exception, uh, occasionally there might be a female thrown in there, but dominantly it's the patriarchal male side of things. So, stands to reason, we wouldn't have known that Sarah was Terah's daughter. But he had, obviously, a daughter named Sarah from a different woman. Could have been that his wife had died and he remarried. We don't know all of the details of that. It just in this one verse, we get that Abraham and Sarah are related as half-brother and half-sister. And he's telling this to Abimelech. So he's basically saying, so I'm not really wrong. I didn't really lie to you. You ever had somebody do that to you? They tell you a partial truth, which technically is just a lie, right? But they said, well, I didn't really lie to you because it was X, Y, or Z. Your kids ever do that? Yeah, adults never do, just kids, right? The politicians never do that. 
Okay, uh, I'm just kidding. They, they do occasionally, but not only on Sundays. Um, so, we're from different mothers, and I married her. Verse 13, when God called me to leave my father's home and to travel from place to place, I told her, do me a favor, wherever we go, tell people that I'm your brother. This faithful guy in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord comes to him in Ur of the Chaldeans, where he is from. This is his homeland. Somewhere out probably in modern-day Iran, okay? And he says, I want you to head off in the western direction toward this place that I will show you. We find out later on in the story where he is now. It's the land of Canaan with multiple tribal nations and multiple king-like figures of those tribes throughout the whole region. This man who had followed God faithfully, it didn't even seem like in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, that he batted an eye. It just says, oh, Abraham obeyed God and did what he said. This man of faith, as Hebrews 11 tells us, in the hall of faith, it was counted to him as righteousness because of his faith. This doesn't measure up to the character of this man, does it? That he would have Sarah lie to save his butt? What kind of a character does a guy have to be to put his wife in danger? If you think about that. Because when we get to Genesis 12, later on in that chapter, after he was called by God to go off to a land I'll show you, he encounters Pharaoh down more than likely in the Sinai Peninsula, which was Egyptian territory at the time. And Pharaoh, who's believing that Sarah is Abraham's sister, takes him into his har- takes her into his harem, and it almost don't quote me on this, but I read several different scholars on this topic. Seems to be that she, that, that Pharaoh slept with her. Okay? I was shocked as you are. All right? This is why God sent plagues on Pharaoh during Abraham's time. The, pre, the pre-plague plague before Moses. Abraham replied, I thought this was a godless place. Verse 14, let's jump on down there. Then Abimelech took some of his sheep and goats and cattle and male and female, male and female um, servants, and he presented them to Abraham. He also returned his wife Sarah to him. And then Abimelech said, look over my whole land and choose any place where you would like to live. And he said to Sarah, look, I'm giving your brother a thousand pieces of silver in the presence of all these witnesses. This is to compensate you for any wrong I may have done to you. This will settle any claim against me and your reputation is cleared. Do you notice he didn't call her Abraham's wife? I'm giving you back to your brother. Why do you think he does that? To point out the fact that they are the ones that lied and that he is still the innocent one. Talk about adding insult to injury, pouring salt in the wound of somebody who should have known better. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his female servants so that they could have children. Why? 
For the Lord had caused all the women to be infertile because of what had happened with Abraham's wife, Sarah. How long would Sarah have been in Abimelech's harem for them to realize that the women in Abimelech's family were infertile? This wasn't an overnight experience, right? So Sarah was a part of his harem. She would have been up in age by this time. And this more than likely may have been somewhat of a peace treaty between the two of them, which is why he took her as his wife. And now Abimelech, the bigger man of the two, decides, I'm going to give you all of these gifts to prove that I'm still the innocent one and the better man in this situation. I've not even touched your wife. And I'm going to let you choose any portion of the land in my region and in my territory to settle. How many of you would do that if a guy, caught, a guy lied to you like that and put you in harm's way? Whew. Sometimes people of the world act more godly than those within the church. Wow. What a testimony against the church when the church isn't willing to truly trust in God. Which leads me to my main point this morning. When fear overtakes us, God's patience in the face of our lack of trust is incomprehensible. Do you understand what I'm saying? When fear overtakes us, God's patience in the face of our lack of trust in him is incomprehensible. If Somebody doesn't trust you, how does your relationship go with them? Huh? It's not great, is it? When they don't trust you and you don't trust them, there is no relationship. And yet God has patience in the face of our obstinance and lack of trust in him when he is nothing more than trustworthy. And this leads me to my first point is that deceit or lies are rooted in fear. How many of you would say that you have feared before? You have been afraid of something or something or, or different things, or you've been afraid of certain people before. You see, Abraham is afraid of Abimelech because he's afraid of the if Abimelech knows that Sarah is his wife, that he'll be killed. And so he focuses on the fear of the situation rather than the God of the situation. And what happens? He perpetuates an assortment of different things that become destructive to other people. Deceit is rooted in fear. Let's look at Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20 again. When this first happened, this seems to be a perpetual thing for Abraham. Verse 10, Genesis chapter 12. At that time, a severe famine struck the land of Canaan, which is where God had led him to. Remember, I'm going to send you off to the land I'm going to show you. So now they're in the region of Canaan, but a severe famine strikes the land of Canaan, and it forced Abraham to go down to Egypt, and he lived there as a foreigner for a while. And as he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarah, look, you're a very beautiful woman. How do we know this? She was probably in her mid-60s at the time. Now figure 20 years later with Abimelech, she's a bit older, which is why he never said, you're a very beautiful woman. I'm just kidding. That's not what he meant. 
Oh, I know, but come on. Anywho, Abram said to his wife, Sarah, look, you're a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, see you they will say, this is his wife. Let's kill him, and then we can have her. So please tell them that you're my sister, and then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. And sure enough, when Abram arrived in Egypt, everyone noticed Sarah's beauty. And when the palace officials saw her, they sang her praises to Pharaoh. Uh, sang her praises to Pharaoh, their king, and Sarah was taken to his palace. And then Pharaoh gave Abram many gifts because of her sheep, goats, cattle, male, female donkeys, male and female servants, camels. So the brother, if there was no existing father, would have been kind of the patriarch of the sister to marry her off. And so this was a bride price almost from Pharaoh to Abram. But the Lord sent terrible plagues upon Pharaoh and his household because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh summoned Abram and caused him, uh, accused him sharply. What have you done to me, he demanded. Why did you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister and allow me to take her as my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and get out of here. Pharaoh ordered some of his men to escort them, and he sent Abraham or Abram out of the country along with his wife and all his possessions. So Pharaoh's not as kind. Who would be? Right? Because now these plagues have come upon him, his people, the land. It's destroying the situation. And he says, get out. I don't want you here. Which would have been our response? In an article put out by the University of Minnesota, the impacts of living under fear and anxiety can have long-term damaging effects. It can have effects on your physical health. When you fear or live in fear, fear weakens your immune system and can cause cardiovascular or heart damage. It can cause gastrointestinal problems. You ever get, when you get nervous or fearful, it works on your tummy and you gotta go to the bathroom a lot? You know what I'm talking about? It can give you problems. It can also give you ulcers, irritable bowel syndrome, decreased fertility. It can lead to accelerated aging and even premature death. When you allow fear to consume you, no matter what the fear is, unless it's the fear of God, which is a totally different type of fear, when you allow fear of the world and of the culture and of people within the world and situations and dare I say, viruses to control you, and you live under the weight of that fear, there are physical ramifications in the body that have actually been scientifically proven to cause a degradation of your physical health. It can also affect your memory. Fear can impair in, uh, the formation of long-term memories. It can cause damage to certain parts of the brain, such as the hippocampus. This can make it even more difficult to regulate fear and can leave a person anxious most of the time. To someone in chronic fear, the world looks scary and their memories oftentimes confirm that because only the memories of fear are what stick in their minds, not the memories of good things. Brain processing and reactivity become dulled. Fear can interrupt processes in our brains that allow us to regulate emotions, can uh, inhibit us from reading nonverbal cues and other information presented to us. It can make, uh, it keeps us from reflecting before acting, and it can keep us from acting ethically. 
We talked a little bit about this this morning in my class that I was teaching, that we oftentimes become reactive instead of proactive. When we, do, when we fail to observe, reflect, and experience life. Fear keeps us from life experience. Fear causes us to withdraw from life. Withdraw from society. Withdraw from circumstances and situations. I see this oftentimes, especially with people that deal with addiction and struggle, uh, who've oftentimes darkened the doorway of our church and, and they're faithful and they come, but then they relapse and they go back into addiction. Guess where the first place is that they stop going? Church. Why? Because they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because they're ashamed, they're embarrassed. They think people are going to judge them, look down upon them, shake a finger in condemnation toward them. But see, this is the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He uses fear as his main tool against you. When you become a believer in Christ, do you think he gives up on you? No, he ramps up his tactics because he doesn't have you anymore. Church, when we live in fear, it becomes destructive and it leads us to not only lie to others at times, but to lie, more importantly, to ourselves. This also affects our mental health. Other consequences of long-term fear include fatigue, clinical depression, and PTSD. Counselors will tell you this a lot. I'm guessing over the past two years, People going to a counselor has gone off the charts. I'm guessing, I don't have any statistics to back that up, but I'm guessing more and more people have found themselves in a place trapped in fear and anxiety, which has led to chronic depression, maybe even PTSD, that they don't know how to cope. I've seen studies that show suicide rates have gone up. Don't quote me on that, look it up for yourself. But if those are true statistics... What does fear lead us to? Fear, the, the suicide is, is, uh, is typically someone getting to the end of their rope and being so encapsulated by fear and depression that they, they think there's nowhere else to go. There's no way out. There is no hope. And when you get to the end of that rope and the enemy has, has proven to you in his own deceptive ways that there's no way out, and you think the only way out is to kill yourself? What a tragic end to a life where God has given you life and hope and purpose. Fear can cause us to do very dumb things. It can lead to foolish and devastating consequences. It destroys relationships. It can lead to ineffectiveness. It can drive people into hiding. It can paralyze the brave and courageous. And it can render a person hopeless and helpless. This is why God often tells people, fear not. Fear not. In, in, in my sermon notes down here, I have from Genesis all the way down to Revelation, the times where God says, fear not. And it's not an exhaustive list, but there's over 20 times there, okay? Where God says, fear not. Why does God say, fear not? Because God is not a God of fear. He's a God of freedom and liberty and hope. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If the Son has set you free, you are 
free indeed. So what is the enemy's greatest tool against us is to deceive us into believing the lie that we are the only one that's going through a circumstance or situation. We are the only one who, know, who, who, is, um, who is, is stuck. We are the only one who has ever had this specific circumstance happen to us happen to us. See, the enemy, if he can alienate us through fear, he wins the battle over our souls. This is why it's so important as a church to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as some have chosen to do. This is not a treatise against those who haven't come back to the church during this day and age. But I want you to know there is a purpose behind why the writer of the book of Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why? Because when you become alienated from the body of Christ, the enemy can run ripshod over your life, over your mental capacity, over everything in your life. He can get you believing a lie. And fearing everything under the sun except for a holy and reverent fear of God. If I fear God above all else, that reverent, holy, awestruck wonder will drive me into a place of freedom, not into a place of captivity. Okay? Second point is deceit is destructive in relationships. I just mentioned that. According to psychologist and counselor Mark Sanchez, lying and deception impact relationships in very damaging ways. Would you agree with that? Have you ever lied to somebody that you love? Has somebody you love ever lied to you? How does that make you feel? Right? What are your reactions when somebody lies? Somebody you love, not, not just a stranger, Right? We're deceived by strangers all the time. But those you love, when they lie to you, you don't just go, ah, oh well, whatever. No, it cuts to the quick. It, 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 it makes us feel violated when we're lied to by somebody that we love. And imagine when we lie to somebody we love, how it makes them feel. See, see, deceit is destructive in relationships. Mark Sanchez says, lies destroy trust. Would you agree with that? Lies destroy trust. Lies block real intimacy through lack of respect and selfishness. Deception sets up destructive, regressive, maintaining cycles. This is a lie which leads to a lie which leads to a lie. So he writes what the steps of this regressive process is like. When you say one lie, look, look what happens. This individual, you or somebody in your life, perpetuates a deception. The deception leads to cover-up lies, excuse me, and hard-to-remember omissions, which leads to managing the dishonesty which causes guilt and shame, resentment, aggression, and withdrawal, which leads to a victim's confusion, anxiety, and anger that leads to seeking reassurance, which leads to reassuring to continue deceiving. No, 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 I, I really wasn't doing what you thought I was doing, even though you got evidence against me. I really wasn't doing that. And the deceiver tells more and even larger lies with greater ease 
and lower psychological cost. And then we circle back to step one, lies destroying trust. With regard to Abraham's deception in this particular narrative, you see, God stepped in to warn Abimelech and to ultimately cut short Abraham's lie. That's the grace of God toward Abimelech and toward Abraham. God could have let this play out, but he intervened. Why? Because this God that we see, this God of wrath of the Old Testament, actually is a God of love, mercy, forgiveness, and grace. He's not one that's sitting up there going, ooh, this is going to be good. Right? Abraham told a lie. Woohoo! Let's see how this plays out. Because the godless Abimelech needs to get it. He doesn't worship me. No, what does God do? He acts in a merciful way to come to Abimelech in a dream and say, hey, dude, um, you realize you took another man's wife. <laughs> Scares Abimelech enough to right the wrong that he, dis- was, that he made because of the deception of another. What about Abraham's relationship with the kings and officials of the land where they were nomads? It ruined his relationship in Egypt with Pharaoh. Could he go back there now? No. I mean, he basically cut himself up from going back into that territory, which could have been safe for him. What if another famine came in Canaan and he needed to go back to Pharaoh's territory? Pharaoh said, don't you ever come back here again. And now he's doing the same thing with Abimelech on the southern region of the coast of the Mediterranean Sea there in the Middle East. And he's risking the relationship with this powerful tribal king who could have also said, nope, you're not allowed here anymore either. He's narrowing the space by which he could travel and be a part of the land that God was promising him. Do we do that? Do we narrow the land of freedom to which God calls us to because we're afraid? I think so. I think so. What about his relationship with his wife? What kind of relationship do you think Abraham had with his wife? Now, we, we gloss over this, and we see the story of Abraham and Sarah, and they are the two people called by God, and then Isaac comes through them, and, and then Esau and Jacob, and then the 12 tribes that inhabit the land of, of Canaan that becomes Israel, and we get this great lineage and story, but what about the consequences of the breakdown of relationship between Abraham and Sarah when Abraham is insisting to his wife, you tell this lie? To save my butt. That's chivalry at its best, isn't it? And that's a joke, right? No, it's a sign of a coward, weak old man who's more concerned about saving his hide than his wife's. Men, this can speak into your relationship. I'm telling you, when you manipulate your wife, it destroys the relationship. When you try to force her to do things that she doesn't want to do or to act in ways she doesn't want to act, it can cause a rupture in the relationship. Wives, same for you. 
But I'm looking at Abraham and Sarah here, and I'm, I'm looking at what Abraham is expecting Sarah to do for him to save his butt. It had to put a strain on the relationship, which I'm guessing is why after the first experience where Abraham is asking her to lie and say that he's her brother is why she comes to this point where she's like, why don't you take Hagar, descendants will come through them. And then later on in the narrative, whenever Hagar begins to uh, you know, be kind of stinky to Sarah, it's a better way to put it, um, Sarah says, it's your fault, Abraham. Right? <laughs> the breakdown of the relationship, the dysfunction is perpetuated by lies. Would you agree? Okay, I'm just preaching to the choir here. First John chapter 4, verse 18. I love this. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If you do not know the love of God, having fully surrendered your life to him, that love cannot live through you toward others. It says, in, uh, Jesus says, we love because he first loved us. But if you don't live out that love, then there's something holding you back. What is it? Typically, it's fear. When you don't love the way God loves you, it's typically a root of fear somewhere in you that's causing you to hold back. You see what John says in 1 John? Fear has to do with punishment, right? What did Abraham fear? Being killed and having his wife taken from him. So I will live, and so will you, if you just go on and do what they're going to do anyway to be with these guys. I mean, what would the long-term result have been? Let me ask you this. If in Genesis 12 with Pharaoh that Abraham perpetuated this lie, they would have had to continue to perpetuate this lie. I mean, Sarah would have had to stay with Pharaoh to how long? Forever. What was Abraham going to do? And he did. What about Abimelech? I mean, he's doing the same thing again. Did he not learn the first time? What if God never intervened, didn't bring plagues on Pharaoh, and, and, and didn't make the women infertile for Abimelech? What, what would have happened? She would have continued to be his wife. Destruction of relationships. Lastly, deceit has negative ripple effect on others. So what, again, Abimelech here. Biblical scholar David Fawcett Brown insists that Abraham's conduct was highly culpable. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. It was deceit, deliberate and premeditated. There was no sudden pressure upon him. It was the second offense of the kind, and it was a distrust of God every way surprising. And it was calculated to produce injurious effects on the people around him. Not on him, but on the people around him. It was mischievous tendency that had been in the process of development. Because he had done this once before, it was easier for him to do again. Abraham didn't learn from the consequences of his previous lie, and he determined to follow the same pattern of defense modeled from fear and selfishness. Bless you. 
What are the ripple effects of Abraham's deceit? Well, Abimelech, his wife, his female servants were barren, unable to have children. In essence, this curse would have ended the family line of Abimelech. Now, we can call him an innocent man. We know that no one is innocent standing before an all-holy God because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory standard of God. But by the world's standards, Abimelech was innocent, duped by the lie of Abraham, which perpetuated consequences for Abimelech because of Abraham's lie. When we lie, it doesn't just cover a mess in our own lies, which is honestly deceit in and of itself, but it ripples out and affects everybody else around us. Our selfish decisions always have negative consequences for those in our lives, whether through neglect or intentional putting another in harm's way. Our selfishness hurts those around us. As our worship team comes forward to close this out today, I want to close with this. Famed author Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I had to read this, I think I was a sophomore in high school, maybe freshman or sophomore in high school. He wrote a novel entitled The Scarlet Letter. Are you familiar with that? Okay. So that's not an issue anymore in our days. It's, it's, never, it's not taboo anymore to go out and have an adulterous relationship or fornicate, right? It's okay. Everybody's doing it. No scarlet letters for me. But in that day, that novel was so pivotal within the, within the society at the time because this woman got caught in an act of sexual infidelity. And she was forced by the community to wear a scarlet letter, an A, right, for adultery. In the scarlet letter, he writes, no man for any considerable period of time can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which one may actually be true. Oh. Have you ever told a lie long enough that you began to believe it? That, that it becomes the substitute reality for the truth? People can tell a lie so often that they don't know the difference between the truth and the lie anymore. How do you think Hitler was so successful in convincing millions upon millions of his own people to go along with the eradication of the Jews, the gypsies, and other minorities in the land? How do you think so? Because he said if you perpetuate a lie long enough, people will begin to believe it. He thought the Jewish people were vermin, rats, like fleas on a dog. You say that often enough and you continue to perpetuate that lie, what's it going to do to a society? It's going to have ripple effects on society. Sure, you're going to have those strong multi, you're going to have a strong group of people that say, no, I will never believe that. Guess what they do to those people? They exterminate them too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great Jewish theologian, or great uh, theologian, Christian theologian, Lutheran theologian, was also sent to the gallows because he wouldn't buy the lie. Are you living a lie today? Have you convinced yourself that the crap that you've kept in your heart is okay to keep there? The unforgiveness, the resentfulness, the bitterness the hatefulness that you've stored inside, but you've convinced yourself that it's okay because I'm not acting that out. The difficulty is 
When you don't unpack the junk that you've held so much in yourself, if you don't unpack that and get it out and truly look at it for what it is, you're going to continue to be controlled about it, by it for the rest of your life. It could lead ultimately to your de eternal demise if you don't deal with it. See, we call this in, in, in ministry deliverance. And it's not about exorcism and people falling on the floor, foaming at the mouth. Sometimes that happens, which is weird. But still, it's not like that all the time. See, deliverance is, is letting go of that which is holding you back from God completely. I dare say that many of you in here are holding back a part of yourselves from complete surrender to God because you've got junk in your life. You've given him most of yourself or half of yourself or enough of yourself to make yourself feel okay. Maybe to even feel a little bit more confident, but you aren't experiencing freedom in your life because there's a part of you which you're still holding back. Maybe it's the sexual part of you that God created for his purposes rather than for your identity. Maybe it's a part of you that has convinced yourself that you can't live without this one particular thing, drugs, alcohol, or whatever. But that you're a functional drunk or a functional uh, drug addict, that you can continue with daily life. It's not really affecting anybody else but me. Or maybe it's unforgiveness toward a brother or sister in Christ, toward a family member who truly, grievously scarred you. But it's fear that's holding you back because it's fear that keeps you stuck in this paralyzed position, not finding true deliverance. I see so many people in bondage within the, I'm not talking about in the, in the culture. Yes, we expect it in the culture. In the church, I see people in bondage because they've convinced themselves that the sins that they continue to perpetuate in their lives are okay or that the hurts that they continue to harbor because somebody had scarred them in the past are okay, I'll deal with it on my own time and in my own way. And God is saying, no, 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 let it go. What do you think I put those nails through my hands for and through my feet? Why do you think I did that? So you could partially give yourself? If I gave my all, he says, that's all I expect from you. I can preach till I'm blue in the face. I can lead you to a place of truth and deliverance, but that's all I can do. And I know some of you, and I know you're holding back and you've convinced yourself that you'll go to your grave with some of this hurt. Let it go. Find freedom, true freedom in Christ, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. It's only then, not only are you free, but you can lead others to freedom because you can't lead someone to a place you've never been. Father, in this place, I know you're working on hearts and lives. I know your desire is to see the captives set free. That is a theme we see all the way from Genesis 3 to the end of the book. That God, you don't enjoy seeing us tortured by hurts, by sin, by pain, by fear. 
It's a lie of the enemy to, to make us think that if we give our lives up to you completely that we'll be in bondage to all the do's and don'ts of the Bible. But it's only in you that we can know true freedom. No matter how hard it is, how ugly it looks, when we take those things out of ourselves, help us to do the hard work knowing that you're right there through that deep, dark valley as we unpack the hurts, as we unpack the addictions, as we unpack the sin in our life so that then you can reign victorious on the throne of our heart. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.